right. Like Brian said, we are in 1 John chapter 5 today. And uh, as you turn there, if you need help um, finding it, it's, very, it's a really small letter, really close to the back. Um, if you've gone to Revelation, you're too far. Um, I'll just say that this is a letter that was written by Jesus' best friend. Uh, and so when we look at this, we are, we are getting perspective of somebody who knew Jesus better than anybody else. And we are getting the perspective of a pastor who deeply, deeply loves the people that he is ministering to and shepherding. Uh, so we are, we've got a lot of ground to cover. You, you might be confused because the last verse is very short, but we actually do have a lot of ground to cover. So we're going to take a deep breath and we are going to jump right in. So this is, we're going to start actually in verse 18. This is 1 John 5, starting in verse 18. He says, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Sort of a abrupt way to end his letter. John is, is sort of a little bit of a literary bad boy. He doesn't start his letter very conventionally. He doesn't end his letter very conventionally. He's going through these verses where it's, it's sort of like, we know this, and we know this, and we also know this. And dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It feels weird. It feels abrupt. Why would he end that way? And if you were to look in a bunch of different commentaries, lots of people have their own opinions on why John would end his letter like this. To me, the way that I see it, John is kind of giving us a very interesting summary statement of this letter. Over the course of this letter that he writes to Christians, he, he builds up a handful of dichotomies. And they're, they're sort of just like these, these polar opposites that function in our world. So he'll start off by talking about how God is light and in him there is no darkness. So we have this dichotomy. These things are separated. We have life and death. In the letter, he builds these things out. We've got love, and interestingly enough, the opposite of love is not hate, but John says is fear. He says there's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. He's building up these dichotomies. He talks about Christ and antichrist. And now as he's closing, what I see him doing is developing the final dichotomy of his letter. Because all the way up until now, He's, he's really encouraged Christians with a, a, a way of life that really engages with Jesus and is, is thriving and flourishing. If we love one another, we'll experience a thriving life, a, a flourishing life. And so he's building up this one side and with this final sentence, he sort of separates it out and he says, you've got this thriving life here and you've got idols on the other side. John is making a really significant statement, if, if that is what he's doing, if I'm right, I, you know, I, I could be wrong about that. But he's saying that if you're going to want to, if you're going to live a thriving life, 
a flourishing life, the, the way everything is supposed to be, idols are not part of that. They're mutually exclusive. There's sort of, a, when I think about looking at this, I, I sort of hear this implied, if you want to live the thriving, flourishing life you've always dreamed of, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So that leads us to the question, what is an idol? What is an idol? See, back in the day, in John's day, and, and for a long time, even prior to that, idols were funny little statues, and sometimes big statues, that people would, you know, dance around or do, all, you know, a whole range of activities. But basically, the idea was that this statue was a good luck charm. It was going to give you something that you were hoping for, that the, these ancient people thought that if they were to do certain behaviors with these statues, they would give them good crops, that they're, they're an agriculture society, that if, if they could do something to make their crops grow better, that they would do that. And they would think that sometimes these idols would make them um, really fertile and give them a good, big, healthy family, which is always something important. There's a, there's a great verse in the Old Testament, in the book of Jeremiah, that sort of speaks to this. And this is God speak, or Jeremiah speaking on God's behalf, trying to explain this to the people. He says, like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm, and nor can they do any good. At the end of the day, God, through Jeremiah, is saying, these little statues are nothing. They're like, they're just funny looking little blocks of wood. There's no power in them. People have to move them around. They can't even move themselves around. And today, we don't have, I mean, there are, you know, good luck charms. People will, you know, superstitious people will have things like that. But we don't worship statues like they did back then. Idols today, they function in the same way, but they look a lot different. Tim Keller, uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, defines idols like this. He says, an idol is something we look to for things that only God can give. So these ancient people, they are looking to a little statue to bring about a healthy crop or a, a little statue to bring about a big, healthy family. These are things that only God can do. No matter how much work you put in, like you can't force a seed to grow. And I can tell you this from experience because my tomato plants this year were awful. No matter how much you do, it's something only God can bring. And today... We look to things to give us what only God can give. The question that I like to think about in my head is, what do I need in order to be okay in life? What do I need just to be able to like exist in a normal way and to get through life? You start asking yourself that question, reflecting on that, you might start to uncover, the Holy Spirit might start to reveal to you something that you are looking to, to give you what only God can give. I think about things like uh, a smartphone. Smartphones are wonderful devices. They do lots of things for us. You, interestingly, like a statue, at the end of the day, it kind of just is a, a thing. It doesn't, it doesn't really do anything without somebody, you know, interacting with it. 
Are we looking to our smartphones and our social media accounts to make us feel okay? Like if I don't post or I don't, you know, connect with this, you know, group that I'm, I'm just going to feel like something's wrong. Maybe it could be a relationship that if, you know, if, if for whatever reason, me and my boyfriend or me and my girlfriend broke up or for some reason, like if, if something happened to my spouse or my children, like, I don't know what I would do. I don't know what I would do because if I don't have them, I don't think I could be okay. You might be scratching at the door of, of an idol in your life. It could be all kinds of things. I think about the things that only God can give according to Tim Keller's definition. To me, those things are comfort, security, and significance or meaning. If there are things in your life that you are saying, I need this because it gives me comfort, security, or meaning, and it's not God, you're, you, you, that's, that's, a, that's a sort of a red flag to be like, maybe I should pay a little bit more attention. The last one I'm going to bring up, and this one's not going to be popular, I think lots of us might find ourselves in the camp where we are looking to substances to give us what only God can give. I'm talking sugar. I'm talking caffeine. I'm talking carbs. There are things that we rely on. They're comfort foods, you know, whatever it is. Like, you know, there, there's, there's this whole culture in our world today, like, don't talk to me until I've had my coffee, right? Like, you, you get like a free pass to just be a jerk to people before you've had coffee. Like, that's a sign to us. We need this to be okay. That's probably not what coffee was designed for. And so, there's one thing about all of this stuff that, that comes to my mind. Does that mean that coffee is bad? Does that mean that, you know, smartphones are bad or that having healthy relationships that, that enrich our lives is bad? I don't think that's the case. I don't think John is saying in these verses, hey, you need to trade in all your smartphones for dumb phones, get rid of the coffee, just drink water, it's better for you, whatever. I think what he is saying is we need to be aware of anything that would try and take God's place in our life. And I think we need to especially be aware of good things because the bad stuff, like hard drugs, like we've got the door locked and bolted on hard drugs. Like they don't have a free pass to come in, but the good things are, are already inside. The, the, those close family relationships are inside. It could be, it's, it's a lot easier for the good things in life to rise to a, a status where there never were supposed to be there. Another definition that Tim Keller gives in that book, which if you want to learn more about idols, you know, his book is going to be better than anything that I could say up here. Highly recommend that book. He'll say that we've crossed into idolatry. We've crossed into, um, you know, worshiping an idol when good things become ultimate things. When a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, that's when we've crossed a line into idolatry. And so the question is, coming back to this verse, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. We've got these, maybe these are good things in our life that have risen to a level of importance that they're not supposed to have. How do we do that? This is a really short verse. John just says, do it. Keep yourselves from idols. How do we, how do we functionally and apply this 
verse. John gives us two clues in this, in this short little verse, and the first clue is with regards to the verb. Excuse me. The verb here, keep, uh, is, is not, that's not the greatest translation. I don't know if your Bible says something different, but if you didn't know, John did not write this letter in English. English did not exist when John wrote this letter. He wrote it in Greek, and the Greek word that he used when he is writing this verse is phylaxate. Everybody say phylaxate. Sounds like something you would take if you were constipated, right? <laughs> phylaxate is a verb that <laughs> it has nothing to do with that. It, it is most closely associated, most often used with soldiers and shepherds. Soldiers and shepherds phylaxate on a regular basis. This is a word that means to stand guard like a soldier at his post at a checkpoint. And it's, it's a word that also could be used to say, to keep watch over, like a shepherd would keep watch over his flock. So in that case, keep, maybe it, maybe it works. So John is telling us to phylaxate. He's telling us to, to, to keep watch, to stand guard against idols in our lives. The two things about soldiers and shepherds is, is that criminals and wolves, they don't come up and ask the guard. They don't come up and ask the shepherd, hey, I just killed that guy, but do you think I could just, you know, kind of sneak through here? Or the lion saying, I'm really hungry. Can, can I just have one sheep? They don't do that. They come when nobody's looking. They come when nobody's paying attention. They slip through. They're sneaky. And by using this verb, John is saying idols are sneaky. They work just like lions and criminals. They come in when nobody's watching. So you need to phylaxate. You need to pay attention. You need to pay attention. John is saying, if you're going to keep God's seat in your life reserved for him alone, you have to be vigilant. You have to be vigilant to keep idols out of the space that is reserved for God. The second clue that we get is the subject of the verb, which also happens to be the object of the verb. So if you can go back to the verse that has the highlighted, um, it's yourselves. So this was great for me, the fact that it was the subject and the object, because I always get those mixed up in my head. John is using, you, who's here ever heard of the royal we before? Like the Queen of England or whatever, she, she, you know, for some reason, like, she's the, she refers to herself in the plural. I don't know if she refers, I don't really know how it works, but we have this idea, the royal we. Well, this is the biblical y'all. The biblical y'all, okay? English doesn't uh, do us any favors when it comes to this verse and when it comes to a lot in the New Testament. Because English has no way of differentiating between you, like one person, and you, like y'all, like all y'all. And a little part of me dies whenever I say that, because I grew up in New England, and I went to three years of college in Arkansas, and every time I heard, like, Southern people say that, it was just like nails on a chalkboard. But it's, it's, it's helpful, because we don't actually have a word for that. And honestly, I think that this is a side point, this is totally tangent. The fact that we just have you and you 
I think contributes to a false and unbiblical idea that following God is something you can do by yourself. Because when we read the Bible, it just says you, 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 you. And we start to get the idea, okay, it's just this is what I have to do to follow God. Almost every you you see in here is a y'all that we should be practicing these things in the context of a community. So the second clue that John gives us in this tiny little verse is that community is the context for us to be dealing with idols. You think about being vigilant like a shepherd over a sheep 24 hours a day, that's gonna be exhausting and you're gonna start to like fall asleep or whatever's gonna happen. But if there are multiple shepherds, if there's a community of shepherds, they're gonna do a way better job of keeping the sheep safe. And similarly, because idols function in the same way, we have a, a responsibility to one another. So we don't have to just be vigilant, we have to be vigilant, which is a word that I totally made up. And it's probably gonna get twisted up in my head for the remainder of this message. But John is commanding us to be vigilant, to pay attention, to be aware, and to be vigilant. To, to be involved in a community and to do this in the context of relationships with people who also follow Jesus. The best example that I could think of to describe sort of how this works is also totally nerdy and maybe nobody will get it. But who here has ever watched the TV show Doctor Who? British, very long running British, like a few people, okay. Very long-running British TV show. It's a sci-fi show about a time-traveling guy known as the Doctor. He travels around in a blue police phone box, and uh, it's bigger on the inside. And he goes all around different times and places, and he encounters all of these different beings, cosmic beings and all this stuff. And one of the beings he encounters are called the Weeping Angels. Does anybody ever... Does anybody know what I'm talking about, the weeping angels? Okay, a couple people are gonna get this. Everyone else is like, what is he talking about? The weeping angels, David Tennant as the doctor, who is the best doctor in my opinion, describes them as quantum locked. Basically what he means is that anytime a living creature lays eyes on the weeping angel, they literally stop existing. They turn into stone. So when you see them, they just look like stone statues that are angels. Usually they have their, their face covered with their hands. But as soon as you look away, they spring to life and they're lightning fast and they're trying to suck your life force right out of you. They turn you into a weeping angel as well. And so in this episode where we see these weeping angels, they're like, you know, gonna wreak some serious havoc. David Tennant, the doctor is like, don't, blink. Don't even blink. And so they're working and they're trying, like these, this, the community there is working together and they're trying to make sure that these angels don't get them. And basically, I, I won't spoil the episode, but they had to be vigilant and they had to be vigilant to survive the weeping angels. You'll have to go watch that episode. Very good. I highly recommend it. <laughs> so that might all be well and good. We've got some great advice. Be vigilant, be vigilant, use a community, all of that. But uh, that might all sound like really wishful thinking because the more that we think about it, the more that we realize that this advice is too late, way too late. We already have things that when we weren't looking, 
snuck into our lives, snuck into our community and embedded themselves into what we've got here. And that's the bad news. The bad news is that idols have snuck past our defenses and embedded themselves in our lives in communities. And thankfully, John is under no illusions about this. So if you go back to the beginning of the letter in 1 John chapter 1, he says this in verse 8. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If any of you here were going to put your hand up and say, I think I'm actually pretty good. I don't have any idols. John would go, smells like burning denim because you're lying. Liar, liar, pants on fire. All of us have a problem, and John understands that. And so he doesn't just leave us in that place. We're like, well, I guess we messed it up. What, you know, I don't know what to do now. He actually has some good news for us. In the very next verse, in 1 John chapter 9, he gives us some good news. And the, the good news is that... Um, sorry. The good news is that God is faithful to do the work of purification if we will confess and submit ourselves to his process. So this is what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. The, the reference there is wrong. This is verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Two important things I want you to recognize here. The first is that the work of purification, the, the, the real heavy lifting of dealing with idols in our life, is God's work. God forgives and God purifies. It's God's job to remove these things. It's our job to confess them and to submit to the process. When we confess them, we say, the word confess is to like agree with, is we come, we come before God and we say, I agree with you, God, that this is not the, the proper place for this thing in my life. This good thing has risen to a place of an ultimate thing and I need your help to get it back into its proper place. And then we submit ourselves to the process that God works in our life. And that's the second thing that I want you to recognize from this verse, which is that purification is a process. I can think of one story of in this room of this community. There might be more that I just don't know about, but one story that a person confessed an idol and God healed them and purified them sort of in an instant. We call that a miracle. Most of the time, this process of purification takes time. It takes a while. And so the, our ongoing job is to continue to submit to the process. So that's the good news, that God is faithful to do the work of purification if we as individuals and as a community surrender our idols to him. I could, it feels a little bit like a late night infomercial. So we've got the bad news and we've got the good news, but wait, there's more. There's really good news. John has really good news and it comes back to what he said in the few verses just prior to verse 21 that we read at the very end of his letter. The really good news is that as we engage in God's purification process, two amazing things 
start happening. Two really amazing things start happening when we engage in this process. God is, remember, we set up this dichotomy. We want a, a, a thriving, flourishing life, a meaning-filled, you know, secure life. Idols aren't part of it. So as we engage in this process, amazing things start happening. Look at, look at what he says in chapter 5, verse 20. If you have your Bibles open, it should still be right there. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and that we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. So we have true uh, hit on three times, and then at the end we have he is the true God and the eternal life. So as we participate in this purification process, we actually get to live in the triple true God who is eternal life. Eternal life is not something that you wait until heaven to experience. I want, I want to dispel that notion right now. If you think eternal life is something you are waiting for, you're missing out. Eternal life is on offer right now. In John chapter 17, Jesus himself will define eternal life for us, and it comes back to this idea. He says, this is eternal life, that they, the people that, that he has gathered to himself, the followers of Jesus might know you, he, God, and the one that you have sent. And this, we've talked about this word to know. This word means a, a deep, personal, intimate connection. And so as we do this, it's the same idea that he, John says in this verse 20, that we are in his son, Jesus. The, the inness, the knowledge of Jesus is eternal life. Who here has ever had a moment in your life where you just experienced like, you know, it might have been just like a surreal moment where you were like, everything is exactly how it's supposed to be in this moment. Has anybody ever had a, a moment like that? Where you, just, you know, maybe it's at the top of a hike and you these beautiful mountains and you're like, this is exactly how life is supposed to be. Some of you get to the top of the mountain and you were like, this is not how life was supposed to be. I'm dying. Can we go back to the air conditioning? But who here has ever had that moment? I don't come around that often. But there's these transcendent moments that bring us this glimpse of like, this is, this is it. Like, this is how it's supposed to be. Those moments are a glimpse of this true eternal life that God has to offer us. Eternal life, another word for it is righteousness. It's, it's this state of existence where we are in the right relationship with God and the right relationship with each other. And so as we submit ourselves to this process of sort of dethroning our idols, we start to live more and more into that true eternal life. The second thing that happens when we submit ourselves to this process, and this might be a little surprising to you, but the second thing that happens is that we we become, uh, let, me, let me say it this way. Our gospel becomes persuasive to those around us. When we submit ourselves to God's purification process, we become a living dichotomy with the world around us. So in verse 19, 
chapter 5, verse 19, we just read verse 20. In verse 19, he says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. So they say separate. We are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. If you start submitting yourself to this process and God who is faithful and true, we find out in uh, chapter one, to purify us, starts doing that work, we will st nothing will make you look more different to the friends and neighbors and coworkers who don't know Jesus than to submit yourself to this process. We talk about, you know, this idea that we have to love each other so well that a world will look at us and be like, wow, how is, how is it that you can do that? How is it that you live like that? I want to know what your secret is. This is the way to get to that kind of life. You know, the, the, the ways that uh, coworkers will just ask you and, and you can just, you know, sometimes we're like, God, just give me an opening so I can have a conversation with my friend or my coworker. And he's like, okay, submit yourself to my process so we can remove some of these idols so you start looking way different from them. And they're like, how are you doing that? That's how it works. A lot of people need a reputation to be okay. A lot of people need people, other people, to see them in a certain way in order for them to just be okay with themselves. Especially if you do not know Jesus and you do not follow Jesus, by definition, you are worshiping something other than Jesus. And that other thing is an idol. And so, so many of their people pin their hopes and their security in life on what other people think of them. If that person sees you in like a super embarrassing moment and you just brush it off, you know, something happens and you look really bad in front of everybody else and you can own your mistake and laugh it off, people are gonna scratch their heads like, that is a level of security that I do not have. Or when it's very early in the morning and you have not had a cup of coffee and people are really getting on your nerves and you choose to act with patience and kindness, people will start to notice that. And they'll say, where does this energy come from? Like, I'm not even a person until my third cup. Like, how are you doing this? It's, it's, it's a world apart. It's a living dichotomy when we start to submit ourselves to this process. And as I was preparing for this message, I, I feel like the Holy Spirit gave me a verse from 1 Corinthians that really sort of encapsulates this. And so you don't have to turn there. I have the verses on the screen, but this is what Paul says when he's recounting his time when he shared the gospel with the, the people in Corinth, people who formerly did not know Jesus or follow him and then made that decision and made that change. This is what he says. He says, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. We can use well-reasoned arguments and in a place like Boston, we need to have our wits about us. We need to be able to engage with people on that level. But the real persuasiveness comes when we can be living proof, when we can be the proof in the pudding, evidence in front of them that this is real. Paul 
probably did miracles when he went to Corinth. He probably healed people and, you know, made, uh, you know, I don't know, snakes. He, he did miracles. But us today, living this process out is a miracle. None of us can do this work on our own. So when it happens, people will notice, and that is the persuasion of the gospel. And it's God's work, not ours, which is a load off um, our shoulders. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And we're going to prepare to close today. Hopefully all of you got a note card, a little index card this morning. If you did not, can you just raise your hand? Uh, some of our welcome team will come by and get you one of those. Uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to just play for a few minutes instrumentally. And as they do, I want to invite you to pray and reflect. This is an opportunity for you to actually try this out, to, to take John at his word, to take him seriously and keep ourselves from idols and start to live this amazing life of true eternal life that becomes persuasive to the world around us. I want you to reflect on uh, your life and ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that has taken God's place in my life? Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me the idols that have unknowingly and un, you know, purposefully made their way into the place that is only reserved for you? Spend some time in prayer, and when you feel like, you know, you've got something, when you feel like God's maybe revealed to you an idol, maybe it's, you know, uh, financial stability. Maybe it is coffee or sugar or something. Maybe it is, you know, a reputation or a relationship. These good things that have just risen to a place that they've become ultimate things. It's not where they're supposed to be. Once you feel like you've got that figured out, I want you to write it down on your card. And by writing it down, one of the things that that's gonna do is it's gonna make us more vigilant. And make sure I say the right word there. It's gonna make us more vigilant of the things that are sneaking around our defenses when we write it down. And then after a few minutes, the worship team is gonna, we're gonna go into our final song. And in that time, I invite all of you I invite all of you to come to the front with your card and to confess it to the Lord. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. It can just say, God, I know that this is something that I value too highly. Help me put this back in its proper place. And I want you to leave it face up on top of the altar. If you're, if you're, here today and you're saying, I want the thriving life. I want the flourishing life. I need to get rid of this because these things don't exist together. Bring your card, bring your idol, lay it here face up because when we do that, we start being more vigilant. We start being more community. And then when you come and you see somebody else's card, as a community, we can start to pray. As a community, we can start to cry out to God, to confess our sins, 
not as a me, one person, but as a y'all, as a all y'all, as a all of us, and experience God's forgiveness and purification. So they're gonna give us a few minutes to do that work. When you feel like you've got it, you can write it down. And then as we close in song, I invite you to come up and leave your card here at the altar. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, Jesus, you've created us for so much more. You have such big plans. In that same prayer where you defined eternal life for us, you also shared your heart for us, which is that we would be with you, that we would exist in that place with you. You want us there. You want us to live this life that is free from idols. And by your life and death on the cross, you set us free from those things. You've given us an opportunity, a way to live in that freedom. And Lord, I pray that we would not let this opportunity pass us by. That we would not spare a moment in identifying and in, in allowing you to show us. Lord, would you even come in and do the work to show us what it is that we have put in your place and give us the confidence and the courage and the freedom to write it down and to sacrifice it to you, to bring our idols and, and bring them before you and say, you are my only God. You are the thing that I need to be okay. You are the ultimate thing and you are the thing that provides everything that I need in life. And Lord, would you be faithful to us? Even today, would we encounter your presence as you purify us in this process. Holy Spirit, would you guide us? Praise in Jesus' name.